As I've said before, uh, some of you may have wondered, but probably most of you don't, what I do between that chair and right here. And uh, like Dwight L. Moody always said when he walked to the podium, he said, I believe in the Holy Spirit with every step. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so I do the same thing. That's my practice as I, if you see me muttering, that's what I'm saying. And uh, I'm also saying that I would be uh, clear and concise in the presentation of God's word today. And I also pray for your perseverance in sitting in those chairs, because I pray that we would both finish at the same time, that my speaking and your endurance would end at the same time. So I know sometimes I've violated that, and I apologize for that, but it's, a, it's an art form that I've not fully mastered yet. So uh, we come this morning again to the book of Galatians as we are in a study of this great letter of freedom here. Uh, in 2004, in the Ukraine, there were elections held, and uh, it was on the news, and I remembered it, and uh, the reformer, Viktor Yashinko was challenging the entrenched party of the Ukraine, and he nearly died for it. They tried to assassinate him. And on election day, the exit polls showed that Yashinko had a comfortable lead over the established entrenched party that was in power. But through outright fraud, the government reversed those results. And so that evening on television, on uh, Ukrainian television, that state-run television, by the way, uh, the reporter was reporting, ladies and gentlemen, we announced that the challenger, Viktor Yashinko, has been decisively defeated. However, the government authorities uh, had not taken into account one feature of Ukrainian television. The translation, it provides for the hearing impaired. In the lower right-hand corner of everybody's television was a woman who was signing what was being said, or she was supposed to sign what was being said by the news reporter for the hearing impaired. And yet this one brave woman who was raised by deaf-mute parents gave a different message in sign language. She said, I am addressing all of the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what they are telling you. They are lying, and I'm ashamed to translate those lies. Yashinko is our president. No one, the authorities and the studio heads, didn't know what she was signing, so she got away with it. <clears throat> um, Philip Yancey has written this story in his book, What Good is God? And he writes that because of this one courageous uh, translator for the hearing impaired, she started what began as the, it became known as the Orange Revolution. Yancey wrote that they text message, these de uh, hearing impaired people text message all of their friends on mobile phones about the fraudulent elections. And soon other journalists took note of this and had the courage to refuse to broadcast the party line. And over the next few weeks in 2004, as many as a million people wearing orange flooded the capital city of Kiev to demand new elections. Finally, the government buckled under the pressure and consented to new elections, and this time Yashinko emerged as the undisputed winner. Yancey makes the following point. He says, our, our society and our culture is hardly unique in this. Like a sign language translator in the right-hand corner of the screen, along comes a person named Jesus, who says, in effect, don't believe the big screen, they're lying. <laughs> And I think that that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in the book of Galatians. He's saying very clearly, don't believe the big screen. 
their line. Because remember, the churches in Galatia were being infiltrated by false teachers from Jerusalem. Uh, they're called Judaizers. They're trying to overlay a system of law from the Mosaic law over the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby trap these people and fool them into thinking that they didn't have the full salvation that God provided. And so the Apostle Paul is calling them out by the truth and with the truth. In fact, he's calling them the freedom. If you've been with us in the beginning of chapter 5, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Keep standing firm, firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. He equates the law, the Mosaic law system, which was for a certain purpose for the nation Israel, the ceremonial, civil, and moral law of what we call the Mosaic law for a special time in Israel, the nation Israel in the Old Testament. And here these Judaizers, these false teachers, were trying to convince people that, yes, believing in Jesus is okay, but that's not enough. You've got to uh, be circumcised. You've got to adhere to at least uh, the moral and civil aspects of the law of Moses that was given to Moses and so the Apostle Paul, through this little letter, has been building this argument that people are being fooled. They're under the yoke of bondage, and salvation in Jesus Christ is by grace and free. In chapter 3, he explains the gospel of grace. In chapter 4, he illustrates the gospel of grace right out of Old Testament accounts. And in here in chapter 5, he is applying the gospel of grace. Grace, of course, is unmerited favor. It is the basis of salvation, what Jesus Christ has done for us. We appropriate by the means of faith, but it is through God's unmerited favor to people. And so he has been balancing between legalism and license. Of course, uh, the legalistic people, the law people, accuse the grace people of license. In other words, living without any moral restraints. And the Apostle Paul is answering that, that no, it's not legalism, it's not license, but it is liberty, it is freedom. Legalism is conformity to a standard for the purpose of exalting ourselves. It's all about the flesh, and we're going to get to the flesh here in this passage in a moment. Uh, licentiousness is living without any legal or moral restraints. Liberty, though, is a settled relationship with God for the purpose of exalting him. It is a settled relationship with God for the purpose of exalting him. And so the Apostle Paul comes here. And remember last week, we looked at these few verses, verses 13 through 15, and we start to get a hint of what legalism does to a church family. When we are living in the flesh and thinking that we can measure our spirituality by physical deeds or fleshly deeds, sinful deeds, then it causes problems within the church. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So we start getting the impression, the idea that Paul very clearly states here that there is great turmoil in the Galatian church. And I've stated before that if you've been involved in a church that is very legalistic in its approach, in other words, measuring everybody else's spirituality, it quickly devolves into a very difficult situation. And so the Apostle Paul is answering the question in verses 16 through 26 of how do we avoid that? How do we avoid those kind of problems, the dissension, the factions, the trouble that every uh, local church is going to be threatened with? Because Satan doesn't want us to get along. Satan doesn't want us to be unified. 
and he will do everything. He will use our flesh to try to divide us. And so Paul answers this, and the first thing he says is that there is a constant conflict within us. He's going to define that in verses 16 through 18. In verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This is one of the four commands relating us to the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. Uh, we are to walk by the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And those are the two positive commands, and there are two negative commands. In Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Spirit, which has to do with ongoing sin in our lives. In, verse, in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, he tells us, quench not the Spirit, which has uh, the, the idea behind it of we are uh, forbidding others to minister in their gifted areas. And so there are four commands relating us to the Holy Spirit. But this one, the Apostle Paul says, uh, walk by the Spirit. It's an active determination. Remember the Apostle Paul uses this picture or metaphor of walking, uh, you know, in, in the very physical aspect of getting around, that we do something in an active determination that we're going to go from one place to another. And so he uses that picture to walk by the Spirit. It's the principle. It's a manner of life. We don't want to really refer to it as a lifestyle, but that's kind of the idea because lifestyles tend to be external, but he's talking about the internal, about our spiritual life, about our minds, our souls, and our emotions. Uh, I like Eugene Peterson's description of this. It's a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And so he promises here, he gives us this command, walk by the Spirit, and then he gives us this promise, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So there is, he's setting up the table here for this conflict that we all experience. There's the conflict of the flesh and the Spirit. The flesh, of course, is representative of uh, our sin nature. This is what I want when I want it, and I want it now, you know, that kind of thing. The flesh and Spirit are in enmity with one another. When you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, at that moment, the Holy Spirit indwelt you. You may not have felt anything. You may not have seen any difference, but that's the promise of God that his Holy Spirit indwells his people, and the spiritual nature invades your life and is leading and guiding you. Well, that's contrary to our fleshly nature, our sin nature. We want to do what we want to do and go our own way, and it's an enmity with one another, and there's a resulting battle. Look at verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and its spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Referencing the desire of the flesh to self-satisfy. And this is the conflict that we face as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the command, there's a conflict, and then the conquest of the believer's position in verse 18. In verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The Holy Spirit has promised to lead us. If we go to John chapter 16, we see that Jesus prayed and promised that this Holy Spirit would teach us, would lead us, would guide us. And these are God's words to us that he is going to do these things. But our flesh resists that. I've mentioned time and time again that our flesh, the sin nature, is not redeemed yet. We still battle it in this life. And so this is the place we will be. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote these words. He said, we need to have a real picture and understanding of sin. Typically, we look at those who are totally degraded and deplorable conditions and think that that is sin. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that <clears throat> we need to think about it, need to understand uh, the nature of Satan and his activities is not 
to go to the gutters of life, uh, but to really want to know, if you want to know something about Satan, go away to the wilderness where the Lord spent 40 days and 40 nights. That's the true picture of Satan, where you see him tempting the very Son of God. That's the very nature of what Satan is trying to do. And so that very fact that uh, we... Uh, sometimes don't have a right thinking about our own personal sin and our own personal need of the Savior. The Apostle Paul goes on in verses 19 through 21 to give us the characteristics of the flesh. And what he's doing here is he's doing a comparison. Some call this a vice and virtue list, which was very well used in the ancient uh, world by moral teachers. They would have vice lists and moral lists and uh, virtue lists. And the Apostle Paul uses uh, this same technique in 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, but the difference between, say, uh, one of the Greek philosophers' use of a vice and virtue list and the Apostle Paul, for the Apostle Paul, this was reality. This was two modes of life, that we are tempted to be in the vice list, but also we are called to this virtue list. And so there's characteristics of our flesh in 19 through 21. Uh, I was reading a story about, uh, a, well, a news story about Jan Eric Olsen. Uh, that name probably means nothing to you, but he was a Swedish uh, man. And on August 23rd, 1973, he was out of parole from prison, and he attempted to hold up a bank in Stockholm, Sweden. And when the police showed up, uh, John Eric Olsen took four people as hostages, and the standoff between him and the law enforcement lasted six days. At one point during this standoff, Olson called Sweden's prime minister to say that he would kill the hostages if he wasn't let go. And he put one of the hostages, a woman named Kristen Inmark, on the phone, and she said to the prime minister, I'm very disappointed in you. I think you are sitting there playing with our lives. Despite Olson's threats to kill her, Inmark had decided she felt safer with the bad guy than with the police. In fact, she wasn't the only one. The other hostages actually resisted rescue attempts and later refused to testify against their captor. Some of them even raised money for his defense. Now, whenever you hear a news about a hostage who identifies more with their captors than their rescuers, their condition is called the Stockholm Syndrome. You may have heard of that. Many years after the incident in Stockholm, this woman, Kristen Inmark, summed up what had happened. It's, quoting her, it's some kind of context you get into when all of your values, your morals you have, change in some way, unquote. It's amazing how people can get so psychologically turned around that they can no longer tell the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. Ephesians 5.3 warns us that this can happen to Christians. And here, the Apostle Paul is warning us that this can happen among believers, and so he lists out this vice list. He lists it for us. In verse 19, there are some 15, <clears throat> excuse me, 15 different things he mentions. This is not an exhaustive list, but it is pointing out what the flesh can do and what it is potentially uh, able, capable of doing. He warns us against immorality. I think King James Version has adultery and fornication, which refers to unlawful sexual behavior between unmarried or marriage outside the bond of marriage. Uh, so these are sensual sins. There's impurity. There's sensuality, drunkenness, carousing. And then there are spiritual sins, idolatry, putting anything ahead of God. 
Uh, Warren Wiersbe said, we are to worship God, love people, and use things. But all too often, we use people, love self, and worship things, leaving God out of the picture completely. And he also mentions in spiritual sin, sorcery, or King James has witchcraft, secret tampering with the powers of evil. The word that's used there is uh, the Greek word pharmakon. We get our word pharmacy from that Greek word, and it's referring to drug usage, whatever that may be in our day and age. Social sins, uh, most of these are social sins. Enmities, uh, defying and challenging others. Strife, there's hatred, contention, quarrels. These are all product of our flesh. Jealousy, rivalries, outbursts of anger, disputes, seeking self-ambition, dissensions, division, and factions, envying one another, carrying on grudges, desiring to deprive one another of what they have. And then he, he, he concludes it here. Uh, by saying, and such things as these. So he lists 15 things and then says, and everything else that the flesh does. So this is not an exhaustive list. And there are consequences we see in the second half of verse 21. Look at that, look at 21. He says, I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, We need to stop here and remind you that our salvation is secure. But he's talking about people who practice these fleshly lifestyles. In fact, there's a question whether or not they're even people of the faith, true Christians, if they continually practice these things. And yet the idea is that there will be a loss of rewards for the Christian who practices these things. That when we get to heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, at what's called the Bema seat where our works are judged, They will all be wood, hay, and stubble, as Paul says in Corinthians. So this is not a loss of salvation for believers, but there is a question mark if they continue to practice these fleshly sins that they're even believers at all. Uh, So the, the characteristics of our flesh. And then he compares that and notice the deeds of our flesh. That's an active verb, which means that we produce these, our flesh produces these. And in verses 22 through 25, in verse 22, he uses the contrast here. He says, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And uh, that is a passive verb, which means the action is worked upon the object. The Spirit is using these things. Fruit is singular, so this is like a package. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. The, The Holy Spirit does more than just these nine items in our lives, but they are characteristic of our freedom. I was thinking about uh, the spiritual life and about this part we call sanctification. Remember, we've talked about this many times. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to take away your sins and you are called justified, declared righteous somewhere in your history, whether a long time ago or recently, or maybe you're not even there yet and you're you're just seeking what's going on and what eternal life is all about. But anyway, in the Christian life, you are saved by grace through faith. You are justified. For me, it was when I was 28 years old. And uh, I look forward to the day, and only God knows that day. He numbers our days, Psalm 139, when I will be glorified. Back here when I was justified, I was freed from the penalty of sin. When I'm glorified, when I go to heaven, I will be freed from the very presence of sin. That's called glorification because there's no sin in heaven. This middle part. That tends to give us problems, doesn't it? It's called sanctification. And that's where we are being freed from the very power of sin. 
and uh, sin, we are fighting the, the battle here. And this is a battle. This is battle language in this passage here. The flesh and the spirit, uh, they're at enmity with one another. But I think about this middle part. And as the Apostle Paul pointed out back in chapter 3, verse 3, uh, we all started with the spirit. And he's, he's upbraiding the, the Galatians why are you going to the law? Why are you abandoning what you started with? And in verse 3 of chapter 3, it's just good to review that for a minute, uh, <clears throat> where he says, Are you again so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And I, we as good evangelical Christians, we say our salvation is by grace through faith, and we know our glorification is by grace through faith. But I think we fall into the trap, just like these Galatian believers are, thinking that I can add something to God's grace, that something I do in my flesh is going to make me a better person in God's eyes. That, and, and, and it's all about our own significance here. But I was thinking about the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's called the Comforter. He's one who called alongside in John 14, where Jesus promises the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he produces the freedom or the victory, if you like that language, in this battle scenario. The Holy Spirit's the one, and it's the expression of this fruit. And I was thinking, and I wish I would have thought about it earlier, I would have gone to the local store and got a helium balloon and a balloon that I blow up with my own breath. Uh, when you think about the Christian life, those are the two options, really. Uh, think about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ like a balloon. There's two ways to keep a balloon afloat or up in the air, right? If I blow it up with my breath, the only way to keep it up is to smack it up in the air, right? Keep popping it up in the air. And that's kind of what I'm called to do every week. I smack you to keep you up in the air, okay? That's why nobody likes me. You come back. You come back and I, I, I stop doing this. Stop doing that. Get going doing this. You know, uh, that's really my life as a pastor, uh, people come, you come on Sunday, I smack you. Be more generous. So you're more generous for a week. Go on a missions trip. Go on a trip, then you come back. And I smack you in the spiritual orbit. I'm kidding. I hope I don't smack you around. But uh, I had a good, but this is a, a side. I had a pastor in Dallas who always told us and told me, do not beat the sheep. So I hope I don't beat the sheep, okay? Uh, but there's another way to keep the balloon of the Christian life afloat. You fill it with helium, and it floats on its own. It's no smacking required. Seeing the size and the beauty and the majesty of our Savior is like helium keeping a balloon afloat. We don't need external smacking. We don't need, I mean, sometimes, yes, we need to be exhorted and admonished. Hopefully it comes from the Word of God through somebody who loves us so deeply that they want to see us changed, that they're concerned for our lives. And so the characteristics of freedom are found here in what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And he lists them all, uh, love, joy, peace. And he uses this agricultural metaphor. Uh, some of you have orchards or at least have some fruit trees. And I've never seen a limb that's separated from the tree producing fruit. And, of course, Jesus uses that in the Gospels, that illustration of uh, the vine and the vine dresser. You know, and the vine doesn't produce anything unless it's vitally connected to the plant itself. The word love here is that uh, Greek word agape love, which is unconditional love. And uh, 
1 Corinthians 13, you'll get a good in indicator of what that is. And, of course, it's illustrated uh, ultimately and infinitely by what Jesus Christ has done for us. Joy, inward peace, and sufficiency. Actually, thank you, Krista Mary, for mentioning your joy because uh, you did a very good job at differentiating between happiness and joy. Uh, but inward peace and sufficiency not affected by our outward circumstances. Peace, knowing that I am at peace with God. Remember, we were all shaking our fist at God even when we were uh, just little one-year-olds. We didn't know it, but we were because we're born totally depraved. Uh, Other-centered, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, there's long-suffering. I don't like that King James term, you know. I think of that. I've got to suffer long. That's what patience is. Courageous endurance without quitting. Courageous endurance without quitting. Then there's kindness, gracious concern for others, goodness, love, and action. Then there's some that are centered on our own, evaluating ourselves as faithfulness. Am I faithful in all areas of my life? Gentleness, right use of power and authority, power under control. Jesus was gentle. You know, the old King James said meek. And we think of uh, somebody who is just really a, a namby-pamby or something. But really, it's, it's power under control and gentleness. That was Jesus. Self-control, ability to master oneself. Verse 24, there is the counterfeiting of the flesh, we see, as Paul goes on to unfold this. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Uh, there's this knowledge that we were crucified with Christ. Romans 6 tells us that. Believers, uh, it's a completed past action. It's a conversion. The flesh and its passions and desires uh, have been crucified in that sense. And then there's the cultivation of spiritual fruit in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The other bookend of this paragraph, he began with telling us to walk by the Spirit. He concludes this paragraph, the walk by the Spirit. But then he warns us, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Uh, I think I've told you before that I try not to be critical of other ministries. And in, in the orbit that I move in and the reading I do, it's very easy to be critical of other pastors, of other churches, of other ministries. And I have told you before, I try not to do that. But it seems like every week I'm tested on it. And so uh, I, I try not to do that. Uh, it seems to me that the fruit of the Spirit is sustained interaction with God. And how do we do that? It's being in His Word. It's being people of prayer. It's being with other believers uh, and living out our faith uh, in in the spirit, and I was thinking about families and thinking about child children and the traits they pick up from their parents. All of us are a, a reflection of the people that raised us, in, in, whether good or bad. Uh, we have those traits with us, uh, just like by dwelling in the presence of a parent, a child uh, develops. If their parents are Christian, develops love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that is by dwelling in the very presence of the Holy God of gods. Jesus Christ, his Son, and the Holy Spirit indwelling us to a large extent, living in a community of serious believers, we will be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit works in and through us. So the question we need to ask is, are we merely living or are we walking with God? Is it a conscious decision? You know, in, in one aspect, uh, when we physically move from one place to another, sometimes we don't give it a lot of conscious thought. We just launch out and go. 
uh, and yet uh, with walking with God, we need some consciousness about it. Are we committed to feeding our own souls and arranging our lives, getting our needs met, you know, building our own uh, kingdom, or are we committed to knowing God and cooperating with him as his loved participants in a plan that's larger than ourselves? That's why I love the church. I mean, the church universal and being part of the bride of Christ is because we are part of something, something so huge, so much bigger than we are. That's why I love partnering with the churches in Macau and other places because it gets our eyes off of ourselves and onto the greater, bigger picture, and I love that. Uh, so the Father adores us. The Son has died for us. The Holy Spirit empowers us, and he is building his, his people right now. And so are we attuned to that. And I look around at myself, my own life, and I think, you know, uh, what is God doing here? And I think of the concert pianist, uh, Keith Jarrett is his name. And way back uh, in 1975, he was to play a concert before a live audience in Cologne, Germany, at the opera house there. And uh, at the conclusion of that <coughs> concert, uh, the album that was recorded uh, was released in the autumn of 1975, and it, it was released to critical acclaim. And it went on to become one of the best-selling solo albums in jazz history and the best all-time, at least uh, a few years ago, the all-time best-selling piano album uh, Keith Jarrett had. But the backstory to that is when he, he and his manager arrived to do the concert and to do some rehearsals, uh, he had originally requested through his contract that they provide a Bossendorfer 290 Imperial. Sounds like a car to me, but uh, I guess it's the top-line piano, uh, you know, grand piano. And uh, there was some confusion at the opera house, and instead they substituted a piano backstage, which was a much smaller baby grand, and it was only used for rehearsals, never for public performances, and they placed that on the stage. According to the concert's organizer, the substitute piano was completely out of tune. The black notes in the middle didn't work. The pedal stuck. It was unplayable. Uh, Keith Jarrett, when he arrived, he played a few notes, and then Jarrett's producer played a few notes, and they didn't say anything. They walked around the instrument several times. They tried a few of the keys, then after a long silence, the producer, his manager, came and said, if you don't get another piano, Keith won't be able to play tonight. But despite all of those obstacles, Keith Jarrett decided to play that uh, out-of-tune, run-down, little baby grand and go ahead with the concert. And the minute he played the first note, everybody knew it was magic, the report says. The audience hushed into silence. The night's performance began with a simple chiming of serious notes, then quickly gained complexity. Jarrett didn't hold back in any way as he pummeled the unplayable piano to produce something unique. One music critic noted, Mr. Jarrett turned the banal and familiar into something gorgeous and mysterious. And for the Christian life, that is the power of the Holy Spirit. He takes us who are out of tune. Some of our keys don't work. We're all chipped up. We're broken. And yet he can turn us into something gorgeous and mysterious because it's Jesus who's doing it through the power of his spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that uh, as we have been here through these uh, just short time, Lord, that you would use your word in each one of our lives. Remind us 